When God chose to compare his people to something, he could have compared them to anything that he wanted. He could have said, my people are like bears, they're strong. He could have said, my people are like lions, they're courageous, fearless, and brave. He could have said, my people are like foxes because they're shrewd and wise. He could have even said, my people are like dove because they are so peaceful and meek. Instead, God chose to compare his people to sheep. In my studies last week, I I read some things about sheep that make this an interesting comparison. Sheep are directionless. Sheep are prone to wander. Even if you put them in an absolutely perfect environment with everything they need, like green pastures and still waters, sooner or later they will just wander off. If a shepherd does not manage his sheep, they'll wander away and be lost. Sheep are also defenseless. Left to themselves, sheep will not and cannot last very long. Just about any other domesticated animal can be returned to the wild and will stand a fighting chance of survival, but not sheep. Put a sheep in the wild and you've just given nature a snack. When God says that we are sheep who need a shepherd, it's just a very realistic assessment of who we are and what we need. We are sheep who are completely dependent upon a shepherd. But as with all things in God's economy, this is for our benefit. It is my understanding that sheep form a special bond with their shepherd. The shepherd has to know them well. He knows the ones who are prone to wander. He knows the ones who are weak. He knows all about his sheep. The sheep can also learn to recognize their shepherd's voice and they can follow his voice. With a good shepherd, the bond between shepherd and sheep can actually be quite special. In light of this, it seems that perhaps being a sheep that follows the good shepherd isn't so bad after all. In fact, as we'll see today, there are tremendous blessings that follow us as we follow the good shepherd. Open your Bible to Psalm 23. It's page 423 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. I'll read the entire psalm and then I'll come back to the one verse that we're going to focus on today. David writes, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Verse 6. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever title of the message this morning is, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and you are worthy of our praise and you are worthy of our devotion. And we come today with a great desire to know you better. A great desire to have more of an experience of your presence in our life. We come with a great desire for your grace and your goodness and your mercy. Father, we just want you. We want more of everything you are and more of everything that you offer. Father, we want our lives to be lived completely for your glory. 
we love you, Father, and we want everything that we say and everything that we do to testify of the fact that that we love you and that this love has changed who we are and how we are. Father, today, as we look at your word, give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. Help us to lay aside the cares of life that we may have brought in and let us be focused entirely upon you and what you have for us from your word. Let your Holy Spirit come and let him take your word and make it living and active in our lives. Let our hearts be the good ground and let there be real and lasting fruit from what happens here today. Father, we don't ever want our time here to be a box that we check or a routine that we go through. We want this to change us. We want this to draw us closer to you. We want this to better equip us to go out and be lights that shine brightly for Jesus. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want us to understand and what you want us to do and what you want us to be. Be glorified in all things we ask in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. David's past was any indication of his future. Then David was certain that the blessings he had experienced in his past would continue with him forever. The overall picture of verse 6 is that David expected the blessings that came from God to be with him forever. That, the, that as he followed his shepherd, that the blessings of life would have no end. So the, the main thing for us today is that when I follow Jesus, the blessings never end. There is blessing upon blessing, mercy upon mercy, goodness upon goodness that comes into our lives as we follow Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And these blessings are seen in two ways in this one verse. The first is that I will live an abundant life. David says, surely or without a doubt. God's goodness and mercy will follow him all the days of his life. What David describes as goodness and mercy, following him all the days of his life, it reminded me of what Jesus said when he said that he came to give us life and life more abundant. Not a miserable life, not an oppressed life, not an average life, but an abundant life. David understood the abundant life that Jesus came to give. He, he lived that abundant life. And, and in the first part of verse 6, the abundance that God gives us into our lives is described in, in two ways. First is that God's goodness is amazing. I think God's goodness is amazing. David speaks that certainly the goodness of his shepherd would follow him all the days of his life. So I, I was thinking about what are some of the ways that God's goodness will be with us all the days of our lives. And I was reminded of what James had to say. That every every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and it comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation nor shadow of turning. Right? James tells us that that really anything good that we experience in this life, anything good that any of us has, it is a gift from God. 
right? That, that, that our great heavenly father, he is so good and he is so wonderful that, that really any goodness that we experience in this life ever, it is always just a, a taste of his goodness. It is something that comes from him and is for us. And the Bible teaches that, that God's goodness, that really he pours this out on everybody. Right? That the Lord is good to all. And his tender mercies are over all of his works. See, the goodness of God is given to all people. Right? Anytime anyone experiences anything good, that's God. And that's not just for believers. That's for believers and unbelievers alike. You know, like... The book of Acts tells us that God has never left himself without witness. That God sent rain and he sent the crops and he sent all of these things as a, as a testimony to the fact that he was there. That people should seek for him. Jesus said that God makes it rain on the just and on the unjust alike. So what we have to understand is in a, in a world that is cursed by sin. In a world where, where evil kind of reigns. Anything that's good in this world, that always comes from the Lord. Right? Anything that any of us have ever experienced that is good, or anyone ever will experience that is good, that is God showing Himself to be good for us. That is God showing that He is good to all. And one of the ways that the goodness of God should impact us is on how we deal with sin. Right. Paul says in the book of Romans, he said, do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Now, in the verses just before this, Paul asked them, he said, man, you do all of these things that you condemn in others. Right? The, you, you condemn people who do these things and you do them yourself. He said, how do you expect to escape the judgment of God for your sin and for your hypocrisy. He said, what you're doing is you're despising the goodness, the forbearance, the, the long-suffering of God. Because you don't realize that the goodness of God, it, it brings us, it leads us to repentance. So how does the goodness of God, how does it lead us to repent of our sin? How does the goodness of God make us turn from sin and turn to Him? I think in at least three ways. First, the fact that God would forgive sin. Man, that's a good thing, right? I mean, if, if God did not forgive, if God would not take away our sin, where would we be? What a mess we would be in. The fact that the, the awesome and the holy God of the Bible is willing to forgive our sins for Jesus' sake, that is an amazing thing. What an act of goodness on God's behalf to be willing to forgive our sin. To know that the great and the awesome God of the Bible is willing to forgive man. That leads us to repent for our sins. I think a second way is just in a sense of sorrow. I mean, God has done all of these things for us. Every good gift we have comes down from God above. And so God has given us all of these good things, family and health and life and salvation and 
so many things that in our life are good and are a gift from God, and yet we, we treat it lightly. And yet, we sin. I mean, we, we go out and we take pleasure in something that sent Jesus to the cross. All the, the thought that we would enjoy something that sent our Lord to the cross, despite the fact that, and in spite of the fact that God has been so good to us, man, Listen, that ought to lead us to repentance. As believers in Jesus Christ, what leads you to repent? What, what causes you to turn from your sin? So if you're a believer, the fear of hell should not be the primary thing that leads you to turn from your sin. It should be. Gosh, God has been so good. God has been so wonderful. How could I possibly have treated His grace in this way? And a third way, that God's goodness leads us to repentance is in the fact that God is long-suffering and He forbears. Wouldn't it be a bad situation if God judged us for sin as soon as we did it? I mean, not even like what we would call the big stuff. But I mean, even the stuff in our head, because the Bible says God knows our thoughts before we think them. What if we thought the judgmental thoughts? What if we thought the lustful thoughts? What if we thought the hateful things in God? Instantly judged us. And how long would any of us survive in this world? But God's goodness, he gives us time to repent. God in his goodness, he is long suffering. God in his goodness, he says, I know that you've blown it, but I'm giving you time to turn back to me. I'm giving you time to to seek me out. I'm giving you time to turn from your sin. The time that we have. To turn from our sin, that is a sign of the goodness of God in our lives. And so God's goodness, man, it impacts every area of our life, but it leads us to turn from our sin and to turn to Him. And that goodness, all of the good that God gives us and all of the good that He pours out in our lives, that is a part of an abundant life that God promises To those who follow him. But not only goodness, but also mercy. So God's goodness is amazing, but God's mercy is never ending. God's mercy is never ending. When we think about mercy, we need to think about it in terms of God really not giving us what we deserve. And mercy is one of those things that's interesting and that we don't necessarily need it until we've blown it, right? It's not giving us what we deserve. We have blown it and we deserve the wages of our sin. But God doesn't give us that. But what if we've blown it enormously? What if the way that we blew it was almost spectacular in the way that we did it? What if we have blown it over and over and over again, what hope is there for us then? I love this verse. This passage is one of my very favorite verses in all of the Bible. Before I get to it, let me, let me give you the background. Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah just after Israel or Jerusalem had been destroyed. Israel had, Judah had long rebelled against God. 
And they had done the things that God had said not to do. But, but God in His goodness, he, he sent prophets to them to say, turn from your sin and turn back to me. And, and Judah had said, no, we, we really don't want to do that, God. We, we want to do what we want to do. They had taken God's prophets and imprisoned them. Some they had killed. They had ignored them. They had told them, to say, they had told them things like, preach to us nice things. Don't, don't make us feel bad for our sin." And so they, they continually rebelled against God. They continually pushed back. And so God would say things like, if you don't turn back, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to send an army who will conquer the city and will take you away captive. And many of you are going to die. And they would be like, we don't care. We don't think it's going to happen. Until eventually it happened. Babylonians came, they tore down the walls, they destroyed the temple, they, they took the gold and the silver and the bronze from the temple, they took it and put it in the, the temple of their gods in Babylon, they killed many people, others they took captive, and as Jeremiah sat with the city in ruins, he began to lament all that had happened to the people of God. He began to lament all of the problems and all of the things that they had suffered, and he understood that it was all their fault. Right? What had happened to, to Israel, what had happened to Jerusalem, it wasn't a tragedy. It wasn't that they had done good and something bad happened. It was all their fault. They were reaping what they had sown. They were suffering the consequences for their sin. And yet, even in the midst of looking at the city, probably when he wrote, still smoldering, Babylonian... Soldiers still walking through the city. Jeremiah could say, I, I still have hope. I mean, there was still hope in Jeremiah's life, despite the fact the city had been conquered, the temple had been destroyed. What was the hope? Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because, of, because His compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Why, why were some of them left alive? Why were they not all destroyed? Because God's mercies were great. They were, they were reaping what they had sown, but they weren't getting really all that they deserved because the mercy of God was great. The mercy of God was never ending. Jeremiah knew that even now, God would extend mercy to His people. There are going to be times where we blow it. And sometimes we're going to blow it and we're going to repent. And then sometimes we're going to keep pushing. And we're going to sow to the flesh. And we're going to sow to the flesh. And we're going to live in sin. And then, man, there are going to be consequences that fall down on our heads. They're just, we're getting what we deserve. What do we do in that time? How can we find hope? When we're in a mess in our lives and, and it's all our fault. There's hope in God's mercy. The reason we're still alive and, and have not received all that we deserve for our sins is because God is merciful. It is because God's mercy and his compassion is made new every morning. I mean, I love that. Isn't that a great thought? Today is a new day. You blew it yesterday. Guess what? There is new mercy and there is new grace and there is new compassion for today. 
Right? Just because we blew it yesterday doesn't mean we have to stay there. We don't have to live in this mess that we've made. We can confess it to the Lord. And we have a promise that if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I love this verse too. Now, confess, let's start with that. To confess is to say the same thing. It's more, it's more, we typically think of confessing as to say, I've sinned. And certainly that's a part of it. But a part of confession is to say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. And that's big, I think. Because God says some specific things about all of our sin, right? Did you know that, like, that God says that our sin is our fault? Right? I mean, I never get to confess my sin to God and say, God, if it wasn't for Caitlin, I wouldn't have acted this way. God, that's not confession. When I confess my sin to God, I have to say it's my fault. I mean, and I think we know this with like kids as parents. Don't you know this as as parents? I mean, if your kids come to you and say, well, I did it because the other kids were doing it. Does any parent accept that? Oh, oh, well, all the other kids were doing it. I guess it's okay then. No, no, don't we tell them, well, if the other kids were jumping off a cliff, would you jump off the cliff? Right? We, we all say that. And what we're teaching them is you're responsible for your actions. I don't care if every other kid was doing it. You're responsible for you. Well, God's the same way. We, God doesn't say, well, because of Scott, it's OK that you acted that way. God says it doesn't matter how Scott acted. You chose to do what you did. My sin. Is always my fault. Your sin is always, always your fault. But God also says that our sin is serious. I mean, God says in Psalm 51 that all sin is against Him. Think about that. From the great big sins that we like to think of and go, wow, I can't believe they would do that. To the tiny little sins that we say, well, I've just got some bad habits that I need to overcome. All of those are sin and all of those are against God. And so I, I can't go to God and minimize my sin. I can't go to God and say, God, I, I know that I did this, but, but it's not as bad as what Stephanie was doing. Right? I mean, it, what she was doing was huge, but me, this was just a tiny thing in comparison. Again, as parents, we don't allow our kids to do that, do we? Well, Dad, I was talking in class, but this other kid, they were... Throwing spitballs. At least I wasn't doing that, right? No, I don't care. I don't care. You're not innocent by comparison. And it's the same with God. When we go to God and confess, we have to say what He says. And He says our sin is always against Him. It is it's always serious. So if I go to God and I, I'm taking my sin seriously and I'm confessing it, I'm saying, God... I sinned, and it, it was my fault. And it was all my fault. God, this was big. We have promises that God will forgive us and that God will cleanse us. The idea is that He, he takes it all away and, and He restores us back to that relationship with Him. And we can be sure of that, that God will do this, because John, He, he puts these promises in God's character and God's nature, God is faithful and just. 
And the idea of God being faithful and just is that he does what he says he will do. God always keeps his word. If God has said he will do it, he will. So God is faithful to forgive us when we confess it. God is just to forgive us when we confess it. We we can be absolutely confident that no matter what we've done, whether it was huge and enormous or, or really what we would consider minor in comparison, our faithful God will forgive us if we confess it. It's a promise. It, it, and it's never ending. I mean, John doesn't give us a, a set number of times. And, and this is one of those ways I, I'm so glad that God is not like me. And, and maybe you're not this way, so I'm not going to put my failures on you. But I can be unforgiving. I mean, once, twice, three times, three times you're pushing it, but four and beyond. I mean, I'm just not, I'm probably not going to open myself up. I'm, I may say I forgive you, but I'm not letting it go up here. And our relationship is never going to be the same. And, and that's not acceptable. and That's not right. And I'm not saying that's the way we should be. I'm just saying that's the way I am. But God is not like me. And for that, we should all say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. There is no end to this. He is faithful and just to forgive us when we confess our sin. What if I confess it, have to confess 15 times in a day? He is faithful and just to forgive us when we confess it. What if I have to confess it every day of the week? He is faithful and just to forgive us. As long as we're alive, His mercies, by His mercy we're not consumed. And as long as we're alive, there's hope for grace and mercy for us. As long as we're alive, we can confess our sin. And He would be faithful and just to forgive us. And that's good stuff. That's good to know. And David says that, that these things, that the goodness and the mercy of the Lord, that they, they follow Him. And the word follow... It, it really it pictures a pursuit. And, and a lot of times in the Hebrew, the word is used in a negative way of really of a predator pursuing a prey. But here it's a positive. That we are pursued by the goodness and the mercy of Almighty God. Again, how awesome is that? You think about it. Our God sits in the heavens and does whatever he wants. He spoke the world into existence. He is so holy that no eyes can behold him. Even the angels are careful in his presence. But his goodness pursues us. His mercy pursues us. He chases us down with his goodness and his mercy so that he can bless us in our lives. Man, that's awesome. That is amazing to think about. And that is an abundant life. And the God of heaven sends his goodness and mercy to pursue you and pours those things out upon you over and over and over again. Blessings following Jesus, they, they never, ever end. And then, secondly, I will live an eternal life. 
As long as I'm alive, God's goodness and mercy pursues me. One day my life's going to end. And then I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So my blessings, they, they don't end when I die. They just move to a whole different level. They change from here to there. David pictures himself not as someone who is a temporary house guest, but as a permanent member of the family. That when, he, when the blessings of this life stop pursuing him, it's because he's died. And then he goes and he lives with the Lord forever. You know, one of the greatest and most consistent promises in Scripture is that we get to be with the Lord when this life is over, that this life is not all that there is. Jesus, he, he told his disciples, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am. There you may be also. Now, this is a, another one that's pretty neat in the context. This John 14 is in the middle of the, this last teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples before he goes to the cross. It starts in John 13. It ends in John 18. And in this time, he's told them some things that are disturbing. He's told them that, that, they've, that they're going to leave him. They're all going to turn and run away from him. He's implied that he's going to die by talking about his resurrection. When he said they're all going to turn, Peter, of course, being Peter, says, not me. And the others say, oh, no, not me either. But Jesus said, no, they're going to strike the shepherd and, and everybody's going to flee. And so they're they're concerned. They've given their whole lives to follow Jesus. They've they've walked away from everything they knew to follow after him. And now he's giving them what appears to be a last will and testament. What, what's going to happen? It, he dies. I don't understand what that means. What happens to us when you die? Can, can you imagine how they must have felt? Fear. Maybe discouragement or depression. They're, they're sitting there and Jesus is talking about his, his death. And they're thinking, that's not the way the Messiah is supposed to happen. This isn't... This, we didn't... We didn't walk away from everything to watch you die on a cross. Come on, this can't be right. And in the midst of this, Jesus tells him, he said, don't, don't let your heart be troubled. You've lived your whole life believing in God. Now you need to trust in me. Don't, don't let what I'm saying get you down. There's still good here. There's still good that's coming. And then he begins to lift their eyes up from, from this world to the world to come. But in my father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Where I am, you may be also. But again, he's going to go and then he's coming back for them to take them to be with him. Of course, that's the same promise for us. He's gone to prepare a place. But one day he's coming back and he's going to take us to be with him. Forever. The promise that Jesus is coming back for us as believers, it is one of the, the most consistent promises in the New Testament. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples, the Bible said they just stood there and stared up into the sky. Probably thinking, when's he coming back? This can't be right. And it says that angels said to him, why are you sitting there? 
you got a job to do. The Jesus that you saw go up. He's coming back someday. Go and get busy until then. I mean, this is for believers. This is our blessed hope. This world is not all that there is. No matter what happens, this world is the worst it will ever be for us. What is waiting for us in eternity is far better than anything the world can comprehend. And Jesus is coming back for us. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, we, we have a wonderful relationship with Jesus in this earth. Our relationship is, is built upon His Word. It is built upon the Spirit within us and experiences that we have with Him. But that's just a minor part of what it will be when faith gives way to sight and we see Him as He is. Can you imagine what it will be like to see Jesus in all of His glory? The old song says it will be worth it all. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Jesus. This life, it's going to be filled with hardships and trials and dark valleys that we have to go through and enemies that are around us. And, and that's just the way it'll be. But this life isn't all that it's going to be and all that, there's, all that it's meant to be. And one day, one day our shepherd is coming back for us. And when we see him in that moment, we're not going to regret a single thing that's happened to us in this life. We're not going to ever say, well, I served Jesus too much. I, I devoted my life to Him too much. I, I gave too much. If anything, if there are any regrets when we see Him, it'll be that I didn't serve enough. I didn't give enough. I didn't do enough. Because, oh, how great and marvelous He really is. One day we'll see Him. What a glorious, glorious time awaits us. Blessings, they, they don't end. They just get better as we move into glory. But the key to this, to all of this, David said in verse 1 that the Lord is my shepherd. See, the blessings that, that come, they come to those who has the Lord as their shepherd. In John 14, Jesus made a similar statement. He, he said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And everything rises and falls on our connection to Jesus. Without Jesus, none of the promises are ours. None of the blessings are ours. But with Jesus, we get everything. There's a story, and I'll close with this. And I may have told it before. It's a, one of my favorite stories. Rich guy died, and he had a massive art collection. Some very rare and famous art pieces. But the portrait he was most proud of was the one of his son who had died in the war. And according to his will, the art was to be auctioned off. And so art collectors from all over the world came to, buy, to bid and to try to buy these rare and great pieces. 
Well, the first piece to come up, it was the portrait of his son. But nobody wanted that. I mean, it wasn't worth anything. The artist who did it wasn't famous. It was just of his son. And so the bidding doesn't happen. People just sit there. And then finally, one guy, in an effort to to move things along, he bids $1,000, whatever. Nobody else bids, going once, going twice, sold. Once it's sold to this guy, the auctioneer closes up everything and gets him. And everybody says, wait, 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 I don't understand. We've got all of this other art to auction off. And the auctioneer says the will states that whoever gets the son gets it all. In order to get all that, the, all that he had, they had to first get the son. Because that was the most important to the father. Whoever gets the son gets everything. When we miss the son, we miss everything. This morning, the main question you can answer. Is the Lord my shepherd? Am I following Jesus? Because without him, you you miss it all. But with him, you get everything the Father has to offer. Let's stand.